Jesus gave a personal message to a group of believers living almost 2,000 years ago in a region we would now identify as the country of Turkey. And the amazing thing about it, it's also a personal message to you. Today on The Voice of Prophecy, we're continuing our series, Reading Revelation. Thanks for joining me on today's edition of The Voice of Prophecy. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra, and today we're going to pick up on a project that I started, oh, quite some time ago. We were actually reading our way through the entire book of Revelation. And after the first seven or eight episodes, we really had only made it through the first chapter because the first chapter has just got so much content. It's so dense. Today, I want to pick up where we left off and start in on the seven churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And I'd really encourage you, if you can, to grab a Bible so you can follow along. Of course, if you're out driving or doing something else that makes reading dangerous, just listen. But if you can follow along, please do, because it really helps with things like comprehension and retention. It's one thing to listen to the Bible— And actually, that's the way the Bible was originally delivered to most audiences, just someone would read it to them. But your understanding really does go up if you engage more of your senses. So if you can, grab a Bible and follow along. I believe that when we started in on the seven churches, I mentioned that Bible students have long believed that the churches were actually real, literal places in the ancient world. But they also represent the history of the church in advance. In other words, these seven letters to the seven churches are actually prophecies. You'll notice back in Revelation 1 and verse 20 that Jesus refers to the mystery of the seven stars, which represents the angels of the seven churches. In other words, there is a meaning behind the seven churches, a meaning that would be discernible to Christians in those days. Back in those times, a mystery wasn't something you could not know but it was something that would only be understood by those who were on the inside, by believers. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that it was, and I quote, given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And you find that statement in Matthew chapter 13. But on that same occasion, there were those who were not disciples who did not understand Jesus' parables. A mystery is something that people on the inside understand. Now, the same thing is happening here in the book of Revelation. On the surface, here are seven letters to seven very real churches. They actually existed over in Asia Minor. To this day, you can visit the cities or the ruins of the cities where these churches were located. And the descriptions of the churches actually fit things that were happening back in the first century. But there's more to the story than what was actually happening in John's day. The churches also have a deeper meaning. The prophecies of Revelation follow the same general pattern as the prophecies you find in the ancient book of Daniel. If you go and look at Daniel chapter 2, you'll find a progression of world kingdoms that stretch from ancient Babylon down to the fragmented Western Roman Empire and stretching all the way down to the second coming of Christ, for that matter. In Daniel chapter 7, 8, and 11, the prophet goes over those same prophecies, but then he adds all kinds of details, looking at the situation from different perspectives. Now, the same thing happens when you read the book of Revelation. You have all these sets of seven, 
there are seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and so on. And the general pattern for each set of seven is historical. Generally speaking, each of these sevens is a prophecy that starts in the day of the prophet or at some other important point in history and moves forward down through last day events all the way to the judgment or the second coming. That's what we have in the prophecy of the seven churches. So, let's start at the top today with the letter addressed to the church of Ephesus. We'll find it in Revelation 2 and verse 1. Here's what it says. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, here's what I want you to notice. In each of these seven letters, Jesus identifies himself using some of the imagery from Revelation chapter 1. At the very beginning of the book, you'll remember Jesus shows himself to John using a lot of different symbols. And in each of these seven letters, he chooses one or two of those symbols to describe himself. Now, in this case, he shows himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven candlesticks. And that's a powerful statement to the first century Christian church. If you think about it, John was among those who actually saw Jesus and heard him speak. He knew Jesus personally. He'd spent three and a half years in public ministry with him. But then shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus started talking about leaving. It is to your advantage that I go away, he said. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart... I will send him to you. That's in John chapter 16. Then came the moment when Jesus actually left. The disciples had already lost him once when he'd been arrested and crucified, and now they were going to lose him again. The Bible says that after Jesus went up, they just stood there, staring up into the sky. An angel actually had to remind them to believe Jesus' promises and get back to the business of everyday life. So, you can imagine the impact that this letter would have for the very first Christians. Jesus introduces himself this way. I'm the one who holds the churches in his hand, he says. I actually walk among the churches. I have never left. In fact, to use the words from the book of Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you. There couldn't be a more perfect introduction for the early first century church. Now, let's move on to verse 2. Jesus says this, I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. The sad reality of the first century is that it didn't take long for false teachers to show up right inside the church. Go read your way through the New Testament, and you'll notice that a huge portion of it is dedicated to rooting out falsehood inside the church. Behold, Jesus said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he was absolutely right. Most of Paul's letters actually deal with contrary influences that started to make their way into the Christian church. The devil might have been defeated at the cross. He may have been ruined by the death and resurrection of Christ. But that didn't stop him from trying to destroy the church and stop the spread of the gospel. In fact, his defeat at the cross seems to have made the devil even more determined. If you look over at Revelation 12, you have this unbelievable description of the ministry of Christ, the whole plan of salvation. It it starts with war in heaven and brings us down to the moment the devil is defeated by the cross. 
Now, keep one finger here in Revelation chapter 2, but flip over a few pages and look at what it says in Revelation 12, verse 10. Listen to this. Then I heard, this is verse 10, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That's an incredible passage. It describes the defeat of the devil at the cross of Calvary. And and when we get a little further into the book of Revelation, we'll probably visit that chapter, that passage again in more detail. But here's the part I want you to see right now in verse 12. Look at this. Revelation 12, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. According to the Bible, the devil doesn't think straight. He can't admit defeat, and he makes it his prime occupation to destroy the Christian church. If he couldn't get to Jesus, maybe he can get to Jesus through the people Jesus loves. Now, we're up against a break, so flip back to Revelation 2, verse 3, and right after the break, we'll pick up on the story. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Like, where is God when people suffer? Or can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Okay, we are back from our break, and we are in Revelation 2, verse 3. Jesus is speaking to a real congregation that lived in the ancient city of Ephesus, a city you can still visit to this day. But he's also speaking to the entire early church, that first generation of believers that took the gospel to the whole world. Here's what he says in verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Now, this is what the early church got right. Somehow, without the benefit of the internet, without email or religious TV networks, those early Christians managed to take the gospel to the whole known world. The growth of Christianity in the first century was unbelievable. It spread so quickly that Paul was able to tell the Colossians about a gospel, quote, which was preached to every creature under heaven. That's Colossians 1.23. The first century church knew their assignment, and they labored tirelessly to make disciples of all nations. They refused to get discouraged, even when public opinion was against them, even when all but one of the disciples died a martyr's death. They stayed the course. And that's what Jesus said they were doing right. But unfortunately, he also had to issue a warning found in verse 4. Listen to this. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, just try to imagine how painful it would be to hear Jesus say that he has something against you. 
If a friend says, I've got something against you, I can always tell myself, well, that's probably due to a misunderstanding. He probably got it wrong. But with Jesus, you don't have an excuse. You can't dismiss it. Nevertheless, I have this against you, it says in verse 4, that you have left your first love. You know, I remember the first married argument that my wife and I ever had. Of course, we'd had some disagreements when we were dating, but nothing is quite so disheartening as your first argument when you're actually husband and wife. It happened on our honeymoon. We'd been cooped up in the same car for days on end, and suddenly we had some stupid disagreement about where we wanted to spend the night. It was just a small thing, but it made us both so mad that we drove right past a perfectly good motel and we drove another hour in absolute silence. Now, did that disagreement mean we were no longer in love? Of course not. Disagreements are part of human marriage, and I suspect God knows that a relationship with fallen people is going to have its moments as well. God knows we are weak and likely to sin, so the Bible actually makes provision for the occasional setback. If anyone sins, John writes in 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If there's one thing the Bible is clear about when it comes to the character of God, it's that he's very patient. He's long-suffering, ready to forgive. So when Jesus talks about the early church leaving its first love, he's not really talking about the occasional misdeed. He's talking about a much bigger problem. Loving Christ means dying to self. It's a lot like human marriage. It means putting your own wants and desires on the back burner and instead living for what God wants. It's the same thing Jesus did to win our salvation. He emptied himself of everything. He made himself of no reputation and went all the way to the cross because that's what we needed. Greater love has no one than this, it says in John 15, than to lay down one's life for his friends. When you and I come to Christ, it's something of a reciprocal relationship. According to Philippians 2, God expects you to have the mind of Christ. He expects you to follow in his footsteps and put self to one side. And in the beginning, that comes rather easy, because you're so excited about the incredible forgiveness that you've been given. But over time, it requires some effort on your part to maintain an attitude of selflessness. It's just like your real earthly marriage. In the glow of your wedding, it's easy to keep up a strong relationship and live for your partner. But five or six years down the road, you discover that you still have self-serving tendencies, and it takes some dedication to keep your marriage strong. Now, sadly, in the earliest days of the Christian church, there were people who fell by the wayside. Five minutes after seeing Jesus back from the dead, it was really easy to be excited about the whole story. But two generations later, when the first eyewitnesses were practically all dead except for John, it would have taken a little dedication to keep the spark of that first relationship alive. I mean, just go back and have a look at your own life. When you first come to Christ, you almost drive everybody crazy with how excited you are. But then 10, 20, 50 years later, Sometimes you have to wonder where that first excitement went. This is why it's so important to maintain a living connection with Christ. This is why it's so important to live with a daily attitude of repentance. So often, we treat repentance as something that just happens once in your life. But that's not how it's really described when you read the whole Bible. Repentance is more of an ongoing frame of mind. 
an ongoing attitude that should be with you the rest of your life. You have as much to be thankful for today as you did the first day you interacted with God, maybe even more, and you can't afford to lose sight of that. Now, Revelation 2 verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. You know, I grew up in a Christian tradition that said you can never, ever lose your salvation. You can never, ever lose your relationship with Christ. And to a point, that's absolutely true. God is not going to break his word to you. The book of Romans says, Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, nothing can tear you out of God's hands. But if you read that whole list carefully in Romans chapter 8, you'll find something that's not there. It's you. God will not hold you captive against your will, and heaven will not be populated with people who don't want to be there. Paul once wrote that he had to put effort into his own relationship with God so he would not end up outside the kingdom. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He writes, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, if somebody like Paul could throw away his relationship with Christ, if the great apostle himself could find himself outside God's kingdom, then you know that could happen to any of us. Now, I don't want to make you overly concerned about your personal salvation because you can have absolute confidence in the promises of God. If he says he forgives your sin, then you can take that to the bank. But never lose sight of two important facts. Fact number one, there is an enemy trying to destroy you. The devil has turned his full wrath against the Christian church, and he will show you plenty of opportunities to neglect your relationship with God. Fact number two, a relationship with God is not a mere legal contract where you recite certain words and then God has to accept you. That's not how it works. Christianity is an actual relationship which requires an ongoing commitment. Okay, we're up against our next break, but in just a moment, we'll finish this first letter to the churches, so don't you go away. We'll be right back. We're in Revelation chapter 2. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning, just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. This is the Voice of Prophecy, and today we're continuing with our series, Reading Revelation, which is probably going to be a very long series, so I'll probably have to spread it out over a number of years. There's just so much in the book of Revelation, and even a few verses could keep us busy for days. 
But for today, we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking at Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus. I think we're in verse 6. If you can, please follow along. This is Revelation 2 and verse 6. But this you have, it says. Now, notice how Jesus starts with what the church is doing right, and then he mentions what they're doing wrong, and now he comes back to what they're doing right. It gives you the distinct impression that Jesus is absolutely in our corner. He loves us enough to warn us when we're in danger of going off the rails, but he loves to dwell on what's right about you. Verse 6 again, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, we're not really sure who they were. I mean, not exactly. But we are pretty sure that they were a group of people who practiced licentiousness. In other words, they taught that the grace of God essentially allows you to do whatever you want. Some of the early church fathers suggest that the Nicolaitans were a sect that followed the teachings of Nicholas of Antioch, one of the seven deacons mentioned in Acts chapter 6. From what we can gather, these people separated the spiritual world from the physical world. They were dualists. And they taught that certain sins, say like sleeping around, were just physical sins, so they didn't affect your spiritual nature. That's just affecting your body, they said. And of course, that runs completely contrary to the teachings of Paul, who said that sins against the body are still sins, maybe even the most damaging ones. The Bible deals in absolute physical reality. Adam and Eve were created in a very physical world. That was God's ideal plan for us, not some disembodied experience where you float around out there in the ether. The first sin committed was a real physical sin, and every sin we commit is rooted in physical reality. So the Nicolaitans were absolutely wrong, and they posed a risk to the early church. You might say they were antinomian. Now, that's just a fancy Latin way of saying they were against the law. The Bible defines sin as transgression of the law, and the people clearly defined in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 as the objects of the devil's special wrath are, and I'm quoting Revelation 12, those who keep the commandments of God. It was John who wrote in 1 John chapter 2, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. There's no question that God's moral law will always be in effect. And frankly, the cross of Christ proves it. God couldn't do away with his moral law because it's a picture of his own perfect character. So the only solution for sinful human beings was for somebody to pay the price for our disobedience. Now, apparently from what we can gather historically, the Nicolaitans were teaching that God's moral law no longer applies. They were also suggesting that compromise with the prevailing culture is perfectly acceptable if it means that Christians can live in peace with the world around them. And on that front, we might have to admit that Nicolaitanism is alive and well in 21st century Christianity. I mean, if there has ever been a generation that's tempted to compromise with the whole world, it's probably us. In fact, it's getting harder to distinguish Christians from the rest of the population simply by the way they live. We now engage in the same habits. We consume the same entertainment. We seem to be willing to make all kinds of moral compromises with the prevailing culture. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't love people and exhibit the love of Christ. Of course we should. But moral compromise isn't really love. It's more of a cop-out. It's a way to deflect the mandate to preach the gospel. 
I like the way one writer puts it in something I was reading just the other day. It said, Today sin is the same malignant thing that it was in the time of Adam. The kindest thing that can be preached to the sinner is the truth of the binding claims of the law of God. Think about it like this. Your neighbor's house is on fire and they're fast asleep. Do you avoid banging on their door because you don't want to make them uncomfortable? Or do you show them the truth so they can escape? Modern-day Nicolaitanism says that God overlooks sin. It's no big deal. But I've got to ask this. If it's not a big deal, why did Jesus have to die? The good news is that the early church apparently saw how dangerous that kind of attitude really was, and Jesus commends them for that. They might have grown weary of well-doing, but they had not started to sin with abandon. Then Jesus finishes with these words, down in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, every one of the seven letters ends the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear. It turns out that the book of Revelation is not supplemental reading. I know lots of modern preachers have put it in a secondary category because they think it's impossible to understand. But never forget that this whole book starts with a blessing for people who hear what it says. This is not the impossible book. Every one of these letters is addressed to real churches in the first century, but every one of these letters is also addressed to Christians living in specific periods of history over the last 2,000 years. And then every one of these letters is also addressed to you. There's a reason John wrote it down. There's a reason you have it in your hands today. You are part of the Church of Christ, and you can follow this faith all the way back to the first people who read these words, and you will find the same courage of conviction to live like they did. The gospel is as relevant today as it was back then, and Jesus still walks among us, giving us what we need to be faithful. And this is his promise found in the last words of this letter. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is the unbelievable part of the story. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of sin, the whole human race was escorted out of the Garden of Eden to face a cursed world and a cursed future. But out of an unmatchable love for you, God has intervened. He has paid your price because the paradise of God would always seem incomplete to him if you weren't there. Listen, I know this life can be hard. I know that to live as a Christian in the 21st century isn't easy. In, in a lot of ways, it's beginning to look like life for the church all the way back in the first century under the Roman Empire. But I, I've got to encourage you, stay the course. Do not tolerate evil, keep your patience, and above all, live every day for the Master. Persevere because this is going to be well worth it. And one day soon, when you step back into paradise, this life will seem like a really dim memory. A woman, when she is in labor, Jesus once said, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. According to Jesus, what lies just beyond the finish line is going to be well worth it. Stay the course. Learn from those early first century Christians. Follow their example. And one day, you'll get to meet them in paradise. 
I'm Sean Boonstra, and this has been The Voice of Prophecy. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Now, whether you're a classic introvert like Sean, a textbook extrovert, or somewhere in between like me, I'm sure that you can remember a time when letting someone new into your life turned out to be a painful experience. When we interact with others, we leave ourselves vulnerable. And yet we also allow for opportunities to bless and to be blessed. Perhaps you're wondering right now what God has in mind for your life. Or maybe you're wondering if He even knows that you exist. If you're searching for answers to these and other of life's tough questions, I know where you can begin to find answers. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Or visit us online to begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today to BibleStudies.com.